0: Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today's guest is John Sevior, founder and portfolio manager at Airlie Funds Management. Despite being bitten by the investing bug at 21 years old, it wasn't until 11 years later after a successful career as a financial journalist, that he finally took the plunge and joined Perpetual. Starting out in 1994 as an analyst, John eventually went on to become Head of Equities in addition to running Perpetual's famous pure value strategy. After leaving Perpetual in 2012, he went on to found Early Funds Management along with David Cooper which has since built a successful track record managing funds for institutional clients. In 2018, John and David decided to sell the business to Magellan in an effort to simplify non-investment functions and open up early to retail investors. With John now freed up to do what he does best, manage a portfolio, he's largely stayed out of the spotlight in recent years. But thankfully, he's made an exception for us. In this episode, we discuss how and why the Ailey philosophy has changed over the last decade. He explains why they sold the business to Magellan and what he spends his time on now. And we hear about two high-quality retailers that the market is underestimating. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. John, welcome to the show. Good to be speaking with you. Good to be here, Patrick. Why don't we start at the beginning, as I often like to do on this show. Why don't you tell me the story of how you first came to own some portfolios of stocks?
1: Well, I guess the the original source was uh, my mother, who uh, was a very keen stock market investor and also a pop- possibly an even keener horse punter as well. But she was a keen investor, and on turning 21, I inherited – uh, her portfolio of six or se- second, six or seven stocks. She was a very focused investor. I liked that. So I inherited those. I had no real concept of what the stock market was despite studying uh, economics at university. And so I had to go about schooling myself in uh, what the stock market was about. And I started just by chance. My first job was with a small stockbroking firm in Melbourne. A mate of mine had had a summer holiday job there and I'm not sure he was, it was within his remit to offer me his job, but uh, he suggested I might like to take that position. And the long and short of it was I ended up starting with a a small Melbourne stockbroking firm called Davies and DL, who that was a great place to to learn about about investing.
0: You take a pretty concentrated approach yourself these days, don't you?
1: I do, and I think probably the older I get, and as my uh, my brain capacity diminishes, I've got, you know, there's fewer and fewer things that I find easy to think about fewer and fewer things, but I have always favoured a more concentrated approach, uh, I guess, probably mimicking, you know, some of the better investors around the world over time, but the concept just
0: appeals to, to my temperament. Do you still remember any of the stocks that you owned from back in the days? are any of them still on the ASX or have they changed shape now? Well
1: that's a brilliant question and I was only uh, reflecting on this. I remember them as vividly as as yesterday because it was all so new and exciting. I turned 21 I inherited inherited this portfolio and I didn't really know the difference between. ICI or uh, MIM or, well, actually, I would have known some of the more of the consumer names, but I think the names were ICI, which was a subsidiary of the UK parent, MIM, Mount Iser Mines. So both those have been taken over. CUB, it was ultimately taken over. South Australian Brewing, ultimately taken over. GJ Coles, which is the obviously the antecedent of the supermarket, and the Meyer Emporium, which then became part of, coles myers so that's six or seven and then one other very small company gordon and gotch which is a book distributor which was i think taken over by news corporation so it was a you know a bit of a case study in say, so if you look back a lot of those companies have been taken over and it was a bit of a case study for one of the great waves of rationalization in australian industry
0: back in the kind of late 80s early 90s there were i mean there was Perpetual and Bankers Trust—they were kind of the two big firms, and almost—I mean, if you look across chief investment officers of, of boutique funds management in Australia today, a big portion of them came out of one or two of those firms in, in the in the early in, in that period. You know, you've got people such as ker Nielsen. Um, Peter Morgan, who was a guest recently, Paul Moore, yourself, Matt Williams, I'm sure there's a few names I've forgotten, but it really is like, it's it's quite impressive the number of people that came out of those firms in a relatively short period of time. What do you think was kind of the special source in those environments that produced so many great investors?
1: It's hard to speak with any great sort of insight on some of the other firms, although I did get to speak to a lot of fund managers in pursuit of news stories as a financial journalist but the the firm I was drawn most to was as a result of those conversations was perpetual they were a very grounded group of people they didn't think they knew all the answers and I didn't know all the answers I was drawn to that they were open to a conversation and I really liked their investment style they took big positions in companies outside the market leaders. They they weren't what you'd call activists in the modern day sense, uh, but they understood the concept of of industry rationalisation, so they enjoyed a rich period of takeover activity across their portfolios over a long period of time. They had some very basic principles of investing, none of which are rocket science, but I describe them now, and they're very much similar to the principles we adopted Aerie, at Airly. They're sort of guidelines that stop you making mistakes. And within that framework, they gave people—it was quite a broad church of individuals—and they gave people a lot of freedom to express themselves within those within those principles. So I don't think it's any great surprise that there were. A lot of individuals who felt very empowered by that process and after they'd done their time at Perpetual felt sufficiently confident to go and do, uh, to start their own businesses.
0: You mentioned there the early philosophy. Could you tell me maybe a bit about how you developed that and where it came from and how it's, or if it's changed over the years? Is it the same now as it was when you first launched the form or or launched the firm, or has it evolved a bit?
1: Oh, look! It's evolved a bit, a bit, and I'd thank one of your previous guests, Emma Fisher, for bringing uh, a little more intellectual uh, rigor to our process. But the essence really is largely unchanged, and that's trying to find, trying to balance the quality of the company against the price we pay for it. That's in very simple form how we how we look at the world. the The broad principles were drawn uh, largely from the approach we executed at, at Perpetual. As I say, none of them are rocket science. They they look at the, the quality of a company's balance sheet, the quality of the business. They look at management. And one of the great privileges we have as institutional investors is that we get to meet management teams. And Matt and I have met most, well, many versions of management teams over the nearly 30 years we've been working together. And if you think about the fact that the average tenure of a CEO in Australia is about four or five years. That works out to about five. We're talking averages here. We're talking generalisations. That works out to about five generations of management in some companies. So we've listened to a lot of stories and I guess we've got, you know, we get a sense of what's plausible, what's achievable and, and what's not. So the balance sheet, the quality of the company, the quality of management, and then the the third piece, which is always the darkest part of the art, is valuation. And I think at Perpetual it used to be characterised as a mixture between art and science, and I think that's a very good characterization about how we think about it. I know when I started as an investor, I was about 95% art and 5% science and, and gradually I've educated myself over the years.
0: You mentioned there that yourself and Matt have worked together for close on thirty years, and rightfully that you you've probably outlasted most management teams on the ASX at this point. I'm just curious, what's been kind of why do you think you've been able to work together at the top of a company for so long? Like it, not many not many teams can stay together, you know, across two, three, four decades.
1: Look, I mean, I can't. Having met a lot of individuals in the industry over a long period of time, I can't imagine having anyone having tolerated me for that period of time. Again, reflecting on it the other day, how it is, and Matt and I had a cranky moment a couple of weeks ago, and you know there was a little bit of frostiness for half a day, maybe. I, I, it was my fault, and in in apologizing i said well look you know we've worked together i think for 28 years i think i've felt cranky about you for uh, 3 days prior to this so that makes 4 days in 28 years that's a pretty incredible relationship in a high pressure game and i think a lot of the credit goes to matt he's got uh, i've seen very little evidence in fact no evidence of hubris at almost any point over all that time he's had a phenomenal track record he's you know, not given the accolades, not that he'd seek it that he probably deserves. And I think even though we fish out of the same pool, we believe in the same principles of investing, I don't think at any time uh, have either of us tried to shove a stock down someone else's or either of our throats. Uh, so there's this you know very deliberate space given to each other to express ourselves as we encourage people we work with to express themselves. So the guardrails stop you driving the truck over the edge, but there's a lot of freedom to express yourself on the freeway of investing, of investing outside that. So I think it's it's just a deep respect for each other.
0: Well, let's fast forward a little bit. I believe it was about three years ago now that you or that it was announced at least that early would be selling their business to or your business I guess <laughs> to Magellan what was it that made you decide to to sell to magellan what what was the motivator there
1: uh well it, there are a couple of factors at play and and selling the business wasn't the outcome that we were seeking uh when the discussions began it was and I hadn't I hadn't sort of realised this when we set out with Ellie. I mean, I should have realised it, but I guess the the game is changing all the time. But we, we're in spend, spending an increasing amount of time on non-investment matters, compliance, administration, and I guess taking us further away from the core tasks that we love doing. So uh, Chris Mackay is an old friend, you know, one of the founders of, of Magellan, and I, and I had a couple of conversations with him just about you know how how, you know how should I think about dealing with this, and so I guess the belief was that these non-investment fact, not non-investment activities, which are really important in this day and age, should be part of a bigger a bigger business that does this more expertly than than we did. And you know, Chris, this was a conversation we had, and Chris suggested I speak to Hamish about this, and the. As the conversation evolved, it seemed to make sense that we fold our business into theirs, that, that our back office gets folded into their back back office, which they do, did and do exceptionally well, better than us. And that was really the primary reason for the, the transaction. Uh, a secondary factor was the ability for us to approach the retail market or enter the retail market, which we hadn't done quite explicitly at Early. We didn't and couldn't have done it on a stand standalone Magellan have probably th- the best distribution and marketing team in the business and they've supported uh, Matt and Emma who's I mean that that's been there that's been there project for the last 3 years have supported their entry into the retail market so I guess in short the giving us the ability to focus more on investment matters and the ability to enter the the retail market are they're the primary drivers.
0: So with a lot of those additional you know kind of responsibilities and tasks taken off your off your plate I guess, what does your day-to- day look like now?
1: Uh, well I'm stilling still investing clients money. that's my day-to-day job. And look that really means a, a lot of reading, listening, thinking. so that's I mean, not not a lot's changed and that's really what I enjoy. That's really what I enjoy doing. So that that really have, hasn't had a change. We've got that really hasn't changed. We've got a, a fantastic team of young analysts who we give uh, license to uh, within our principles of investing to to push forward ideas where they see opportunities. And I guess there's a bit of mentoring, but not a lot's changed from from what I've traditionally done for the last you know nearly thirty years.
0: Well, let's get into some of the investment stuff. Where, As we sit here, we've just passed the end of Australian reporting season, which is always a, a busy and exciting time for Australian investors and companies alike. What have been some of the biggest surprises for you over August and also now as we're moving into company visitation as well? Has there been anything that really stuck out to you as you know unexpected during this period? Oh,
1: look I, I don't I don't really think there was I mean the highlights were I mean obviously the 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 effects of covid on business activity are still being felt I think if you had to identify you know there's probably a, a little bit of inf- of inflation emerging in lots of businesses as supply chains uh, are being disrupted glo- uh, globally I think just with the uh, sort of you know, general restrictions in life and in business. The the general cost of business is increasing, but offsetting that in terms of what what and obviously there's been a fair bit of demand, particularly in consumer facing businesses, brought forward. So, it's been uh, and a lot of companies have resisted giving guidance because of the uncertainties and how much of that brought forward consumption. Is going to how elevated that's going to make remain, or is it going to sort of you know, drift back to the general trend line of growth? Increased payout ratios. You know, the other side of companies spending less on capex has been there, has been there enhanced ability to increase payout ratios. So it's been an absolute windfall period for in, investors in terms of of uh, cash dividends i think there's been 10 or 15 odd billion dollars of buybacks companies balance sheets perversely having endured a, a very challenging period of in the economy there as a result of but, but as a result of australian consumers not being able to spend money overseas that's been redirected internally so a lot of those consumer facing businesses who face uncertain futures or less certain than usual are in a terrific financial position. So I think lower capex, increased payout ratios, very good balance sheets, but probably no greater uh, outlook in terms – no no greater certainty in terms of outlook than
0: six months ago. Do you worry about companies' ability to kind of meet future – Investment requirements with the, you know, you, you mentioned there higher dividends, you know, um, less less kind of capital being retained on the balance sheet. Are they going to be able to meet demands when we are opening back up, you know, or is are, are we going to see ca- capacity restraints there from this kind of underinvestment?
1: Well, I think there's a little bit of that. I I, I notice. I mean, I think some businesses, again, sort of consumer type facing businesses. Or some wholesaling businesses, I know, super retail have increased their inventories. Uh, Batcore, the wholesale auto distribution parts business. I think they've realized that that they can't maintain industries, uh, inventory levels at the at the sort of record low levels they have been. And they've there's, you know, this it's hard to seek, you know, this there's, there's an element of judgment that that comes into this. No one quite knows what the demand path is going to look like in the next 12 months, but I think on the balance of probabilities, which sometimes is just the best decision-making uh, sort of process you can, you can resort to, is that companies will need more inventory than they currently have. And with supply chain disruptions as they are, it's probably the prudent thing to rebuild inventories.
0: All right. Well, let's get into some stocks. JB Hi-Fi has really been one of the great success stories in Australian retailing over the last, you know, really it's more than 10 years now it's more like 15 or 20 I think off the top of my head. Um but certainly at least as far as um, perceptions go it it it's not easy to see where the future path for growth for the company is. You know, Australia has a a pretty well developed network of stores expanding overseas is often Challenging for, for retailers, so I'd be curious to get your perspective on what the future looks like for JB Hi-Fi. Where does the growth come from from here? Well, I guess this uh,
1: you know the, the main source of growth is has been sort of store rollout and product innovation, which is not they control the store rollout, which is um, but but product growth is not something they really control as a as a retailer. But the one thing about, and I think people have probably asked this question of JB Hi-Fi in its sort of more mature state, maybe in the last sort of five or seven years, when it sort of burst onto the scene, it was, you know, shiny and exciting and, you know, they grew from a low base. And obviously in the law of large numbers, it's harder to grow off a higher base. But one thing, uh, and so even in their more mature phase of life, People have asked this question, as I say, we've asked this question, but one of the many reasons I've liked JB Hi-Fi is the fact that they do a lot of small things well. And if you look at the factors that I think have contributed historically and currently to their success and hopefully in the future is it's got a terrific culture, sort of can-do culture, I think, uh, during the peak of the pandemic, they uh, took the initiative of hiring seventy five vans to do their own their own deliveries because that was the quickest way they and most expeditious way they were you know they're going to keep the machine rolling. The conversations with management are very honest. they don't try and make you think they've got all the answers. and if I were working in a in a business like that, I think there's a sort of refreshing honesty about that. Uh, it means that there's a environment where you can actually go and make mistakes because uh, management don't think they've got the uh, all the answers. I think there's that kind of culture. I think that's a that that is. I think that is a cultural advantage. I think their cost of business is right up there with Best Buy, which is cost of doing business is right up there with Best Buy, which is a you know sort of global leading retailer in the space, even though they're they're a much bigger business. So I think it's as I say, the product cycle is not out is not within their control, store rollout is, culture is, doing lots of small things, trying things and making mistakes, and cutting off the mistakes quickly, but learning from those. Just the I, I guess the the compounding influence of all of those factors is I think quite powerful. I think it's been a been a company that's been Underestimated for what it is over over a long period of
0: time. Do you think there's any more room for additional stores now? Like, it, 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 do you expect the store footprint to? Can you, obviously it can't grow at the pace it has been, but is there still you know do you still see room for I don't know say 20 percent increase in store growth over uh, over a period?
1: No, it's much it's it's much slower than that. So I think the you know, incremental growth, as I say, is product development. The good guys has probably got. Got some scope, uh, and and just obviously doing online, uh, doing online better.
0: Yeah, I have to say their online is pretty impressive. I bought a product from them recently, and you have an option to get a JB Hi-Fi staff member. To, if you, I think if you order by midday, they'll have it to your house by six pm that evening, which is pretty impressive of, of all the uh, the online deliveries I've I've dealt with so far. I think that's the best one. <laughs> Well, it's.
1: I think it's that's sort of emblematic of the the Kando culture of the place, and I'm not a. Well, I'm not much of a consumer actually, but I love the JB Hi-Fi. The out of store experience is terrific, as you describe. But the in store experience is terrific. It's fast. It's you know they're knowledgeable, and it's as I say, I'm I'm not much of a consumer, but it's a it's a joy. It's a joyful experience.
0: Do you think the stock offers good value today?
1: Yeah, I think it offers pretty reasonable value. It's about, you know, it's rated about where it has been over the last few years. I think, you know, less than 15 times earnings. I think the issue is how much demand has been pulled forward in the last 12 or 18 months. I think that's why the market is a little wary. But I think it represents, as you look around, a What's just a, a, a pretty expensive market by historical standards? JB's is is you know is is fair value.
0: From one retailer to another, Premier Investments amongst their kind of stable of brands, there's two real uh, standouts, of course, which are Smiggle and Peter Alexander. I think anybody who's followed the company or the brands for a, a few years would would agree that they're kind of the stars of the of the portfolio. A few years ago, Specialty Fashion Group was in a similar situation with uh, City Chic being their kind of star brand and having uh, a whole bunch of other smaller, you know, call them legacy brands, I guess. Mm. Um, and they spun those off, you know, separated the brands. Uh, and it's been very successful for for uh, City Chic. I'm just curious, is do you foresee or would you like to see some kind of similar thing happened for premier investments or do you think that those brands really well work well together as a as a unit
1: i hadn't really thought about it it's a it's a terrific question because there's no obvious there's no obvious link between certainly between smiggle and the uh, and the apparel brands which i'd put peter alexander in and they're obviously high those two are higher growth brands and the, the the legacy brands so uh, look i th- i think there's no uh, you know it's uh, nothing i've ever really talked about with the with the company to be candid so uh, and they've never really sort of raised it i think I think there's, and I don't think there's a lot of uh, cross cross subsidisation cross within within the brands. They've they've got independent teams. They're talked about as different businesses. They're in different phases of of development. Look, I guess it could make sense, but I think there's probably much higher. You know, there are higher priorities within the within the group. There's a, obviously a new CEO elect in in Richard Murray. So I guess there'll be you know there'll Look at the business with a clean sheet of paper and 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 you know that that may be a talking point
0: well one of the other businesses that's that's kind of been causing a little bit of attention in their portfolio recently has been Maya. they increased their their stake in Maya and have uh, actually demanded the resignation of several several directors um which you know is is not exactly um Uncharacteristic behaviour. <laughs> um, if anybody Sully who- enjoys Sully,
1: he, he enjoys the sport.
0: <laughs> he does, he does. I, I, have to be honest. When, um, uh, when I, when I saw what, what he was doing there, I thought, wow, this, this. I feel like I've seen this before.
1: <laughs> you have. Um, <laughs> going right, going right back to Coles and Meyer in their yes, yes, in, in their original uh, states.
0: I'm curious, I mean, do you think that I mean, Maya is a difficult business, and obviously they've got some great assets, a great history, um, but it 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 it's it's a challenging business. there's no no two ways about it. Do you think Solly Lou and the team at Premier Investments have the the skills required to turn that business around?
1: Well, I certainly don't I don't think they're going to take it over, but I think they see you uh, know in, in my view, where they see value is uh, or an opportunity more to the point uh, is one the real estate asset base I think they've you know they've got a very good understanding of retail real estate and how that could be dealt with and I think at a high level they see three odd billion dollars of sales a big customer base and with with better management that they could extract more profit out of three billion three odd billion dollars of sales I think that's at a very high level how they see, what they see as the opportunity. And retail more than any other industry that I've invested in is, it, it's quite quirky, often personality driven. And because it's such a highly leveraged business, the people who do it well with a really great focus uh, and attention to detail and I think JB Hi-Fi fits that. Nick Scarly or Anthony Scarley runs Nick Scarley uh, fits that. And Solly is is in the same um, you know it's in the same vein that you can get outsized returns because of the inherent operating leverage if you do it if you do it better than most. And I, I mean, no one I know that I that I actually have had a relationship with you know in a work since over a long period of time works harder than Solly that wherever he is in the world, I know where he's going to be on Saturday, and that is walking around shopping centres and retail outlets, observing his own businesses and the customers' businesses, trends, and he's still doing that as he did 20, 30, 40, probably 50 years ago. So I think if anyone can make a fist of Maya, it's Premier. But I also think he's enjoying the the thrill of the chase or the sport as
0: well. You mentioned their new CEO. How do you? What's the relationship going to be like there? You know, between Solomon and the new CEO. Like, what do you expect the dynamics to be like? So, Solomon's in a chairman role now. Is that right?
1: Uh, yes, he is. But he's, you know, he's got his uh, he's got his finger uh, well and truly on the pulse.
0: So it's more of an executive director, uh, you know, kind of he's actively involved in the business, not just attending board meetings.
1: Oh, absolutely, and the the proof is the fact that that actually, I, I, obviously, he's had to make some just adjustments uh, over COVID, but in more normal times or in normal times, he's absolutely got his. He, he as I say, he's he spends most Saturdays most. Most of most Saturdays, uh, wherever he is in the world, you know, in in shopping centres. So he's well and truly on it. And Richard, uh, having done a you know having done a very good at job at JB's, Sol is a, one of the most persuasive people you'll ever meet once he gets you in your sights, and that became irresistible in the end for Richard. So it'll be it'll be good for him to see a new business and work with you know probably the best or one of the best retail investors in Australia.
0: Well, uh, that brings me to the end of the main part of the interview, but we've got actually plenty of time left. So if you're keen, we can jump into my three favorite questions, which I ask every one of my guests. Excellent. First of all, could you tell me about a book that has been particularly influential on your investment philosophy?
1: I think the standout book is uh, one up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, who ran the- uh, Actually, the appropriately appropriately titled Magellan Fund at uh, at Fidelity for 30 19 years, years, twenty years, 30, 20 years, yes. nineteen yeah. years. There you go. Uh, and so when I joined Perpetual, which was my first sort of job as a professional investor, I had one crack at I had one crack at trying to get in to to Perpetual, and I missed out. And the headhunter rang me up and said, look, a few months later and said, look, they're after, you know, another, you know, they're, they're after another analyst, would you throw your hat in the ring? And I was just busting my chops to, to work there. I just, I, I loved their whole approach to investing and I liked the individuals and their mindset. And I rang Anton, who'd left to start his own business. And I said, what do I need to do to get this job? And he said, "You've got to go and buy One Up on Wall Street, and you've got to know it back the front." And I don't think I've—I uh, don't think I've ever known a book better back the front than I did as uh, One Up on Wall Street. And what it did to me, I realized I, I'd actually been quite a successful personal investor for ten years, but I don't think I could have ever defined my investment strategy. It was—I think I said earlier—ninety-five percent art. Uh, Five percent science, and it was very intuitive, uh, and I had a disproportionate share of luck early on, which is probably the worst thing you can have happen as an investor. But what one up on Wall Street did to me was actually give substance to what you know how I'd been thinking about investing, but couldn't really articulate it, and it actually sort of demystified the world of investing. Uh, to me, even though I'd been a personal investor, so I started perpetual at thirty-one. So for ten years, without really much idea of of, of fundamental principles, it totally demystified. Uh, you know, to the point of, uh, you know, he'd ask his wife and kids what products are hot, uh, and and uh, that just made a lot of sense. And I think. That, that we still apply those principles today. And anyone who asks me to give them some sort of guidance on investing, I, I recommend the first, the first stop is one up on Wall Street. And I think my, my wife a couple of years ago ordered about 40 copies and they sit in our book. Well, they've cr- gradually been whittled away <laughs> as I give them to people who ask, you know, how do we get started in investing?
0: Well, uh to any of our uh readers, if you haven't already read this book, you absolutely should have by now. We've told you time and time again you need to read one up on Wall Street, but I will put a <laughs> I will put a link uh in the uh in the wire of this podcast. As always, it is an incredible book. And if my recommendations haven't been enough, I really hope that John's are. Could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss as an investor?
1: Uh as a As a personal investor or as an institutional investor?
0: Up to you. Whatever you think uh, offers the the, the most interesting stories or insights.
1: (laughs) Great. Well, that's why I'm here, I hope. Uh, (laughs) So, look, my biggest gain would be Breville, which I bought. uh, The funds, I was a perpetual at the time, and the funds were limited up. We owned 15%, and one of the rules was, you know, unless the funds were you know set we couldn't really we couldn't own it unless the funds were set we couldn't buy under our mandates we couldn't buy a single a single additional share uh so in the absolute depths of the the uh the gfc i think breville got well i do know the i do know the the it, it got down to 65 cents and you know i bought some shares and held them for a long time sold them uh, at a substantial gain, but uh, since uh, so there's a there's a there's a lesson in, in I guess being brave when the lights are flickering. Which was the positive lesson. The other lesson, which is also positive, but it could have been a lot more profitable for me, was that good companies can continue to reward you for a long time. So I sold those shares at a substantial gain, but they've since tripled since then, and I think at last last count they were $32 and change so it it was a terrific win but it could have been a lot better and uh, the lesson was that good companies continue to can continue to reward you for a lot lot longer than you ever think it's not to say that they're great value now but it's you know that it's it's a terrific company it's actually it's only got better in terms of the biggest loss uh, I thought I'd done my last sort of self-flagellation on this, but but uh, I'll do it again. And for anyone who's who's uh, heard me answer this question before, there's one standout disaster in my investment career, which was when I was at Perpetual, and this is during just prior to the GFC. We had a very successful investment in Rinka, which was taken over by Semex, a me- Mexican building materials company, and I think we we. We pocketed a large gain, and and I take full responsibility for the the error. I think f- full of of a, you know a fair amount of hubris. There was a takeover for APN News and Media, which was a ragbag collection of regional newspapers and radio assets. Uh, it was a bid, a highly leveraged bid by private equity and members of the O'Reilly family, and. Full of our own self-importance, having extracted a great deal out of the Mexicans with Rinka, we tried to push the bidders for apN news and media for an extra I think it was ten or twenty cents on a on a six dollar share price and that was you know they rejected that, walked away the Gfs we felt the full force of the GFC and I think the shares I dare not. Look, but I think they would have fallen 70, 80% from that rejected takeover bid. And I f- still feel sick to my core to this day. But sometimes you've got to relive those bad experiences to realize there's a terrific lesson in that is that's, that's not to get too greedy.
0: I have one more question for you. But before I ask the question, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting that anybody goes out there, puts all of their money in a single stock and forgets about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in a single company, what would it be?
1: Well, I think... uh if I believe in the way we think about investing uh, at EARLY, which I do, you've got to go back to the principles of investments that that fit those criteria. Uh, so for us, that's you know the durability of the business, the quality of balance sheet, the quality of management and the history of capital allocation. And I guess in terms of the quality of the business, I think about the disruptability, if that's a word of the business, the durability, do we use what they, the services or what they produce every day? So I think I'd probably plump for West Farmers as a business that has a lot of the characteristics that we think about or that we like in a business. Obviously, Bunnings is a dominant player. Uh, it's seen off a, a lot of of uh, competition, Office Works is a business that's you know it's clearly not as dominant, but it's got it it touches it, it touches a lot of people every day. Kmart uh, has been by almost any measure you can think of the best discount department store in Australia in an environment where many of its competitors have either collapsed or gone nowhere over an extended period of time. And then it's got a mix of of other less, well, a less consumer focused businesses. It's got a history of of capital management, uh, which or capital allocation, which has been generally over the journey, uh, very thoughtful and prudent. and management that I think has been um, you know deeply believes in the enduring uh, philosophy of of the company and that's 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 been able to be inculcated in the in the in the business uh, despite changes of management at the senior level they've they've conducted themselves in a very shareholder friendly manner over uh, matter over a long period of time not to say that the shares are cheap and I think you make the disclaimer about that up front but in terms of the principles that, that by which we invest it 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 ticks all of those boxes
0: yeah, I don't think it would be too controversial a statement to say that the West Farmers management, you know, broadly speaking as a whole, has probably been one of the best on the ASX in you know in recent memory. It's uh, it's pretty impressive the the value they've managed to extract from the various businesses over the years. Not many do the conglomerate structure well.
1: No, I think they've they've uh, and they've had periods of time where the the conglomerate structure has been uh, criticised. But I think, uh, particularly under Rob, Rob Scott, that's that has been that notion has been challenged, and and they've actually made some moves that, uh, particularly the spinning off of Coles, the the closure of Bunnings UK, probably some of the more uh, defining, you know, I- internal moves that the company's made in a in a in a long period of time.
0: Well, John. That actually brings us to the end of the interview. Thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. It was everything that I was expecting. So, <laughs> so thanks again for, for sharing your insights and your, and your wisdom.
1: Thanks, Patrick. I've enjoyed it.
0: Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.